So, I've been talking about and excited about talking about this idea of our childness and about our, the childness. And I know you've probably never heard the word childness unless you heard me say it. But it's a, it's a deliberate choice of words that I'm trying to find out if it's going to work. Um, we started looking at this a while ago under the auspices of do we place too little value on what Jesus said uh, about unless you are converted and becomes a little child, you'll not enter the kingdom. Then we, we saw the possibility, the likelihood, and I think the actuality of linking it to the, to the born again experience. And in particular, what the gift of the incarnation is, as stated by John in the prologue. And the gift of the incarnation is that if you receive Jesus and believe his name, that you're going to become, be given the power to become child of God. And then there's a lot to, to think about and learn about that way. Um, and so, that's what this idea of becoming God's child, and we're talking about it. And um, so what is the process? Seeing and believing your irreducible identity. And so the irreducible identity, and I'm just going to very quickly set the, the, the review foundation. The irreducible identity, I believe, that each of us carry is as God's child. And that's super significant in a lot of ways. <laughs> okay, so point one of a process, and, and imagine this is a process... Most of us grew up in, in the Western church anyway that I was a part of. Most of us probably grew up thinking that this was a conditional type thing, this idea of being born again, and that uh, when we're born again, that's when God becomes our Father. But I want to point something a little bit out to you. That's not what the Bible teaches. So point one on this process is actually seeing and believing that our irreducible identity is that we're children of God. And uh, I spent a lot of years with other identities. I spent a lot of years, and there's certainly valuable other ones like sonship or being priests and kings. But think about it. There's never been a son that wasn't a child. And there's never been a priest or a king that isn't a child and wasn't a child. So the other one is accept that you belong and are not alone. We had a beautiful revelation on Tuesday a couple weeks ago that popped up for one of one of the guys that goes there. And it was it was the revelation that he had been all this time, he had been seeing himself, even when he would envision himself as a child and relating to the father, as being alone. But he said, I have siblings. I have a family. And it's true. Uh, we're going to see that in just a second. And then the the issue that I want to try to get to tonight is the first steps of not just wandering around in this thing theologically, which I'm accused of doing accurately several times, but the fact that we can experience this reality. And if it is, this is my proposition, if it is our fundamental identity, the experiencing of it is the most basic way that we're going to know and relate to God. Everything else is going to be secondary and layered on top of that. And if we try to establish and operate under an identity that um, is one of those secondary identities without being assured of our fundamental identity of being a child of God, we're going to be very vulnerable to things like performance mentality and uh, all kinds of other stuff. All right, so point one of this process. Uh, and I want you to be okay with it being a process. The scripture says that he's going to give us the power to become God's children. And one of the quotes that Paul sent us 
this guy, Thomas Merlin or Melton, he said the issue is becoming who you are. And so I want us to take that seriously as we consider. So I want you to see and believe your irreducible identity. So here it comes. He came to those things that were his own. And they who were his own did not accept him. But as many as did accept him, to them he gave the power to become God's children, to those having faith in his name, those born not from blood nor from man's desire, but of God. All right. So a couple points I want to review and, and point out here as foundation. He came to those things that were his own. This is David Bentley Hart's translation, so it reads a little different, but I like it because it stirs up my need to dig it in and dig in and look at it. So he came to those things which were his own, and they which were his own did not accept him. Did their lack of acceptance of him change the fact that they were his own? No. It didn't. Who belongs to God, who God created, who God is the father to, is not a conditional thing based on temporal reaction. Our experience of that, our benefit of it, our engaging in the process is very conditioned upon our reaction, very conditioned upon it. So that's the first point. He came to those things which were his own, and they who were his own did not accept him. But as many as did accept him, to him he gave the power to become God's children, to those having faith in his name. Uh, I want to remind you guys, and especially for those of you that haven't heard this yet, one of the first times I taught this to a group, uh, I went through the introductory parts of it, and we looked at the scriptures in John, and then in Nicodemus, and a bunch of that stuff. And one of the questions that the, the, a gentleman asked that I thought was super profound and super helpful to me, he says, Larry, do you distinguish between the conception of us and our birth? And if so, what do you assign to which? And I go, wow, that was the first question out of the box. I was unprepared for such a depth. But I said, you know, I'll give you my answer off the top of my head. Yes. I go, it seems to me that the Scripture reveals that we were conceived in the heart of God before the foundation of the world. And that our birth, just like a natural birth, takes place as a part of the release and the developmental process that goes on. And here's the scripture that, uh, that I believe that from. This is in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Anointed who in the anointed has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And look at the beginning of verse 4. As he chose us in him before the foundation of the cosmos. And so uh, a, a fact that was startling when I saw the clarity of it and significant in how we think about ourselves and about God was that God acted as our Father before he acted as our creator. And when I first realized that, I first saw that, he acted as our father before he acted as our creator. We were chosen. He did a fatherly act of choosing to bless us in Christ and chose us before the foundation of the cosmos, before the cosmos was created, before man was created, before Adam and Eve were created. All right. That means that this relationship of father and child is pre, it precedes 
even the Creator. And I, I, I started as a Baptist, got involved with Assemblies of God, Vineyard, and all this kind of stuff. And I can't tell you the, the number of times. I can still remember some of the actual conversations, though, where our theology and people, as we were wrestling with it, would assert firmly, well, God is everybody's Creator, but He's not your Father until you make a decision. However, that isn't what it says. The, the first choices were not to create. The first choices were to Father, to choose us in Christ. And if you go on and you read more there in Ephesians, you probably know the Scripture. It talks about us being uh, predestined to be conformed to His image. So God was our Father before He was our Creator. That is how far back our identity goes. Last week, we just looked in a brief introduction to... Um, the genealogy in Luke. And if you think theologically how much energy is put into defining human nature, the the problems of the fall, the evidence of sin, all this kind of stuff, how much of that's put on Adam, you would think that everything about us started with Adam. But the genealogy of Jesus in Luke goes back through Noah to Adam. And then it finishes, if you remember, with the Son of God. So even in a genealogical connection of Jesus and us in Him, it goes all the way back to God. So, God was our Father before He was our Creator. This is our most fundamental destiny. Believing this identity is, so hopefully you can see it, and we'll take time to look at it forever. Believing it, we have help doing that. Serious help doing that. For as many as are led by God's Spirit, these are God's sons. That's the huios word. And I don't, I don't deny son as our identity. But again, there's never been a son that wasn't a child. For you did not receive again a spirit of slavery to fear, but rather received a spirit of adoption in which we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. The Spirit itself testifies along with our spirit that we are God's children. So as especially if we're steeped in a different kind of theology, if we are uh, conditioned to be vulnerable to low self-esteem, if we think that everything's hinging on our decision, or even worse yet, on our performance today before yesterday, of being obedient to the Lord, we're going to have a hard time with this revelation that we are God's children. Our most fundamental identity. But look, and if children heirs as well. On one hand, God's heirs, and on the other, co-heirs of the anointed, since we co-suffer in order that we may be co-glorified. Now, I don't really know where to go with that last line yet, but what I sense is this. If we can understand and believe, and if we can allow the Holy Spirit's inner declaration and witness of us as a child, to hold sway, to hold prominence, it will begin to explain the struggles in this life. And it will actually link us, link us to Jesus in ways that believing that we have to endure them for service or duty's sake or worship's sake never probably can. And that's why I want to that's why I just think this is, I'm super passionate about us getting this thing. So again, as hard as it might be to believe that God's been your father since before creation was made, and that 
His fatherly choice, his fatherly predestination for us to be conformed to the image of his son is why creation was made. It's why it's created the way it is. As hard as that is to believe, when you get up in the morning with aches and pains or you you know, face disappointment or you do all the kinds of things that life throws at us and has thrown at us a lot recently in some ways, there is a witness. We have God Almighty, the Holy Spirit, bearing witness that we are God's children. And we, we, we cannot overestimate how significant that is. All right. I said there was a revelation. Accept that you belong and you're not alone. I cited this as one of those passages of Scripture about uh, Jesus acknowledging the fatherhood of God. And it's one of those first passages where uh, a question was asked of Jesus that he could have answered any number of ways. You know, teach us to pray. Or a, a request. And he answered it this way. Therefore, pray in this way. Our Father, who are in the heavens, let your name be held holy. Let your kingdom come. Let your will come to pass as in heaven, so also upon the earth. Give to us today bread for the day ahead. And excuse us our debts, just as we have excused our debtors. And do not bring us to trial, but rescue us from him who is wicked. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory under the ages. Obviously, not just by the yellow, but by my voice, I'm trying to emphasize there's an us quality here. There's an our father. In a minute, we're going to get to the idea of contemplation. And I'm going to encourage us to contemplate that. Our, I am a child of the God of this universe. In the ancient of days, Yahweh Elohim, he is my father. And you don't have to do like the Trinitarian jealousy thought in your head, because if you remember there in Isaiah, it talks about the child born, His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father. The Incarnation gave us back the understanding of our origin, our identity as a child of the Father. It's his primary gift, I think. So, but there's this other thing. We don't carry that as an individual. So when Ronnie got that revelation... I thought it was super significant. Wow, I, I, I grew up in a small family. I just always thought of myself interacting with God alone. But I have siblings. I have a whole family. And we could go, and, and, and I, I plan on doing it later, study out this our concept. Uh, Jesus leading many brethren to glory. Uh, the first born among many brethren. Our. There's something significant here. And, and this isn't just a theological point to me. And I hope that I can make it transcend that for you too. Like all the stuff that we're we're dealing with in the country politically, or all that we're doing. Like uh, Holly and Zeke aren't here tonight because they got news about. Is it Holly's dad, Laurel? Okay, okay, it is. So he's having some medical stuff. We we'll pray before the night's over. But they had to jump in the truck and head down there uh, today. You know, stuff happens. All the time. 
It's coming at you. And when these words were written, and when Jesus was walking around here, the whole nation of Israel was under Roman oppression, and they had, you know, uh, fields outside town with crosses on them where people were being crucified. So there's stuff that happens. And, and I think divide and conquer, isolate and overwhelm is a strategy that is very real against us today. But the truth is, we aren't alone. And it's not just because Jesus is, is with us and the Holy Spirit's living in us. That's fantastic. I mean, greater is he that's in us than he is in the world, for sure. But we're together in this. When he said, or in response to their prayer, start with our Father, that created something of a bond between us and the others. And if we can really see the bond, and if we can reflect back on the first point I made, try to emphasize that God was our Father, is our Father, by his own fatherly choice and actions before he created us, it changes the way we look at the people around us. It changes the way we evangelize. It changes the way we think about the people from all over the place. Because we share, we share one another and are part of one another. Not just by some weird, only mystical way, because we can trace our lineage back to the choice that he made in Christ for us. So, I think there's something here, and and notice the prayer. Give it to us today. The simplicity of that, I love the way Hart translated that. Uh, It goes through all this majesty about our Father and His kingdom. And then he said, just give to us today bread for the day ahead. As I've been thinking about this whole idea of my most fundamental identity, my most fundamental psyche, my most fundamental sense of awareness of who I am, being God's child, this kind of stuff makes tons of sense now. I mean, what father gives his kid bread for more than today? I mean, it's just, you don't even think. It's not like, okay, it's Sunday afternoon. Here's your weekly food stored away in your closet. Don't let the rats get it. No, it's not like It's an interactive relational reality that just flows. And that's the way we're supposed to be with God. That is the way he is with us. And we're supposed to think about it, and we're supposed to think about it together. I just think there's something big about it. All right. The next, last little segment here is to pursue the experience of your reality. Now, what is your reality? And I usually hate it when preachers do this, but would you say with me, I am God's child? There's probably something significant about that. Of all the things that you could declare, you know for sure that's the truth. It's not just a truth. It could be said to be the truth. Whatever else I am, I am God's child. Whatever else I, wherever else I find myself, whoever else might have a claim on my life. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, that type thing. You are, I am, God's child. Now, the reason that I didn't put it, I am a child of God, is because the same reason that I don't think that we're going to get the most mileage out of this exploration 
using the word childlikeness or childhood. Because childhood chops out a portion of our life, and then we concentrate on that. And childlikeness, in my wrestling with it, makes me, th- it, it tempts me to think that the issue is mimicking childlike behavior. Childness, which is an awkward sounding word, because we don't use it very often, makes me think of there's a nature at the base of this that I need to contend with. How's my childness? It's not a behavioral question. It's an ontological question. It's an essence question. And we'll see if there's a better word for it, but I'm going to stick with this one until it proves ineffective. Because we're talking about who we are and whose we are at the most fundamental level in the universe. So this is where I was so blessed by what Paul brought on the idea of contemplation. Because uh, what is what is contemplation and what's worth contemplating on? All right? Back to the Lord's Prayer. Now, I, w- I was laboring over how to do this, both with you guys on Zoom and you guys in the room. And by definition... Group contemplative prayer is not very effective, I don't think. So uh, maybe tiny group, maybe we could gather around a table or something. Uh, but I'll just share some, some thoughts, and then I'm going to open the mic up if anybody else has got any. Um, therefore, pray this way. Our Father. And so I, I start thinking about this in a contemplative way as, as, a, as a contemplation point. The hour part. Oh, wow. Even though I feel kind of on the outside and isolated, I'm a part of a family, a part of a company of children. A part of a company of children that have been provided for in the greatest possible means in the sending of the very Son of God to take on human flesh. And so, what in this, what in the winds and the currents that are coming against me is up to the challenge of dislodging me from that redemptive gift, that identity. And then, you know, there's there's another passage where Paul says, you know, that he's praying for the the believers there in Ephesus. And he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open, that you'd understand the height and the depth, and so on and so forth, you know. Another place it says that I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor principality nor powers nor things in the past, things to come, none of these things. Well, you can see that if with this idea of being a child. You can see it. You can say, oh my gosh, God, ancient of days, all the stuff, Yahweh Elohim, the Father is my Father. My Father. There had to be a thought like that in the mind of the prodigal son. And the scripture defines that as he came to himself. Isn't that interesting? There in Luke. He came to himself. And coming to himself reawakened a vision of whose child he was. And he didn't even believe it because he went back with an argument concocted to say, I'm not worthy to be your son. 
which of course the father didn't let him hear. But the point is this, that basic identity that could not be destroyed by wandering, could not be destroyed by greed, could not be destroyed by whoring, could not be destroyed by the pathetic end he found himself in feeding and, and eating from the, the slop and the pigs. When he came to himself, what did he find? Not a child of his father. That's awesome. That is awesome. I mean, in what depth is this light bulb going to go off for the people that you know in your life? Or for you and me? What's going to shine in the darkness? Could it be that? The revelation, oh my gosh. <laughs> the Ancient of Days is my father. I was chosen before he made the very first thing. My stature as his child by choice and knowledge and destiny and identity precedes the stars or the dark matter between them. That's pretty worth thinking about. And it's all summed up in that little phrase, I am God's child, and it's summed up in this community. And again, to me, it, 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 it begins, it's beginning for me to create a boldness of understanding all kinds of stuff like that. Like, I can't look at anybody as just somebody on the outside that needs to get saved anymore. I can't. It's not possible. Because I know that whether they know it or not, and whether they're manifesting it or not, I know when their identity was brought into reality by the choice of the Ancient of Days. And God forbid that I should indulge an opinion that doesn't take that into account. So, help me, Lord. Yes, sir. I just realized something. What you're saying is that for centuries we've been trying to save people from the outside in. We should have been saving them from the inside out. All the time. All the time. All the time. And I'm not saying that outside in salvations, God doesn't recognize them and, and move. But I am saying this, that if, if the fundamental place you believe you came from is outside, not our Father, but outside, then you would expect Christian bookstores to have shelves and shelves of books about the orphan spirit. <laughs> and they do. If nobody, if nobody is in a position to be an orphan, we can get past that a lot more quickly than we do. How about this one? So meditation on the Our Father. Our Father. Our Father. Oh, Our Father. That's what I, I think I'd, that would be cool. Um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Anointed. This is the Ephesians 3 passage. Who chose us? Why did God choose you? What did he choose you for? Jesus said it to his disciples. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And of course, in my works-oriented theology, the next line dominated the whole thought. I chose you that you'd go much fruit, that my Father would be glorified. And I have religious def definitions of all those words, bearing fruit, glorifying Father. So it was some kind of uh, thing where I was, I was uh, discovering my duty. I was going to go fulfill that duty. And in the fulfilling of that duty, 
uh, angels went, hallelujah, and God got glorified out of it. But I don't think that's really what it's about. Now I don't think of it that way quite. I think that, oh my gosh, before anything was created in the, in the council between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I was a part of the, the, the company of children chosen by the Father, which dictated the assignment of Jesus in the incarnation and the commissioning of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So, Holy Spirit, you're going to be confirming that I chose them, and they're my child. And Jesus, you're going to go down there, and lo and behold, they're going to be surprised because you're going to look just like them. Why? Because I've already chosen them, and I'm going to make them the way you're going to be made. They're going to be in our image and likeness. Who bears that image and likeness? This is another one of the things out of my past theology. I spiritualized the heck out of that, or the hell out of it, or something. And and, and, and and I lost the whole point. That when, we, when Jesus came down here and he stood before us, we saw what was invisible otherwise. We saw who God was. And we saw who he saw us to be. Like when I first started trying to read the mirror translation, I don't know if you guys have read the mirror or not, Francois. But Francois de Troyes got a handle on one of the functions of Jesus coming in the incarnation and that function is to reveal who humanity is because we've lost ourselves and of course the scripture says it plainly we're like people who look in a mirror and then turn away and lose lose sight of ourselves and when we are looking properly we see the glory of God reflected in the face of Jesus you know as we're looking in a mirror and so but it all stems from not knowing this not knowing this that he chose us so why did you choose us, Father? He'll answer, or he'll stir your heart, or the Holy Spirit will whisper something, some affirmation of your childhood, of God. So that's one of those meditative points that I think is cool. How about this one? We looked at the Romans passage. So the Spirit itself testifies with our spirit, we are God's children. We are God's children. Do that by yourself and then Think about your spouse and think about your kids and think about your enemies. We are God's children. He chose us. He chose us. He's our Father. So I just think this is ripe for contemplative thought. I think it's ripe for that. This is a verse that I used when I first started teaching about us. I didn't even understand what I was getting into. But I started teaching uh, last year about us giving more value to what Jesus said when he said, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you won't engage the kingdom. And God knows that I spent a lot of years trying to manifest and affect the kingdom without thinking of myself as a child. I thought of myself as every other kind of spiritual person. But Anyhow, I'm so excited about this. But this is Psalms 131. I have a New American Standard. Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. But this is just a little contemplative instruction here. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. Now, I'm not advocating that we shrink back from intercession, that we don't uh, witness, that we just roll over like a, like a wiener dog, you know, in, in the face of all the political stuff that's going on. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is a place in us and in our identity, that we must retreat from those things. We cannot let them dictate who we are. 
Because they are Johnny-come-latelys. They are Johnny-come-latelys. Surely, and this is the contemplative intent, I think, that I want us to consider. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. To me, that is a contemplative position that is being advocated that I think could change our lives if we did it on a, on a frequent basis. And then the scope of that contemplation, the scope of that self-positioning is, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forever. An unqualified call to hope. That's pretty impressive. But why would it not be? Why would the image of us as a weaned child at rest against our mother or our father, why would that not be the most fundamental foundation of identity from which we could hope forever? Because it's been true forever. <laughs> it's, it's all about forever. Before the foundation of the world is when that posture was conceived and, and, and it was granted to us in Christ. And uh, like I, I, I told the, the guy about the conception question, I said, look, it doesn't bother me if you believe uh, that we were conceived as a whole humanity. I'm leaning that way now because of the us things and the hours and so on. Or if you believe that God conceived of all of us as individuals and there was just a time first to come into the world, and so the, the, the conception period and the birth is still just like it is in natural life. And I couldn't believe I had never seen that. I mean, nobody is conceived and born on the same day. So why would there not be a legitimate time period? And why does... And as, as people who understand life, which I know you all are in this room, when does it begin? It begins a conception. Birth is just a manifestation of that which was conceived. So to me, this is, a, this is one of those kind of mental images that we could contemplate. And I don't know about you guys, but I've had various, uh, I guess, ascension experiences and prophetic experiences, encounters with Jesus, encounters with the Father. Uh, and, and they've ranged from literally being in the lap to sitting on a knee, you know, like he's on a throne. And I feel like a little kid. And he just sits there, and all of a sudden, I look where he looks, I can see, and he points stuff out. All those kind of things. I think those are valuable. Those are not just, like, mystical speculations. Before we're anything else, we're a child of God. We're God's child. Father's child. So, anyway, those are the three kind of... Uh, let me back up and cover those just real quick again. So, uh, contemplating the ramifications, the foundational identity and security ramifications of our Father. Now, one of the questions Richard's asked me a couple times, we've had some good conversations about it, others, we've talked about it on, on Tuesday. Um, what's the practical aspect of this? I think the contemplation of our Father is, is going to create a foundation of hope and expectation and faith like nothing we've ever experienced. 
Because why, why would our Father not father us? Why would he not provide for us? Why would he not heal us? Why would he not open the doors to us? Why would he not share all that he has? That's one of the untold little mysteries of the story of the prodigal son. Son number two rolls in there and goes, Dad, I want half your stuff. <laughs> okay. I mean, come on. So every indication, I mean, when Jesus told that story, it was so rich with meaning. And, you know, let's slow down. And in the context of our Father, same thing here. He chose us. He chose us. You know, God forbid that we limit our expectation of God's sovereign right to choose to some kind of predetermination of who's going to go to bliss and who's going to go to torment. Please. Help us not think that is what he uses his choice for. When all the while, the scripture is saying he chose us before the foundation of the world. Before we cried, before we pooped, before we did anything. And that we're God's children. And then this idea of just find, and if it's not this image, there's others in scripture for sure. There's others. Uh, there's others. So, okay, so here are some of these quotes. And you've got them, and you guys, uh, uh, Riley's probably got them up on there. But this was, this was kind of a general one, but I thought it was cool. Uh, it says, if we spend a few moments in contemplation every day, we will deepen and transform the remaining moments of the day, rendering ourselves available to others and creative in ways that we could not be otherwise. Clisto Ware. I've read some of his other stuff. He's a pretty cool guy. Um, so this is one that Paul sent us, and I love it. But listen to this one. This is cool. This is uh, got the child thing going. From Henry Nguyen. It is not easy to enter into the silence and reach beyond the many boisterous and demanding voices of our world and to discover there the small intimate voice saying, and I love that this is what he chose to illustrate contemplative speech. You are my beloved child. On you, my favor rests. Can you feel the potential thrill that would run up and down your spine to hear God say that to you? He has chosen you for that. He has declared you that. And that's why I think the contemplation that Paul is suggesting has the potential to sort of seal the deal on this thing. We mostly spend our lives conjugating three verbs. I thought this was pretty wise. To want, to have, and to do. Forgetting that none of these verbs have any ultimate significance. Now, when I read that, I thought, huh? But the reality is, heaven is not going to be the accumulation of our accomplishments. It is going to be the the manifestation of our intimacy. Forgetting that none of these verbs have any ultimate significance except so far as they are transcended by and included in the fundamental verb to be. Here's one from Richard Rohr. When you are concerned with either attacking or defending, manipulating or resisting, you cannot be contemplative. When you are preoccupied with enemies, you are always dualistic. I think that is the biggest threat we face in the current changing uh, political and cultural climate, 
is to be sucked into a dualism that denies us our own unity, our own integrity of heart. And like I say, I'm not saying there's not a time to, to take up arms and uh, challenge what the enemy is trying to do. Weapons of our warfare, they're all legit. Real. This is one that, that's, that we've talked about at our breakfast. Uh, how, do you, you know, how do you face spiritual warfare as a child? I don't know yet. But I know that anybody that has ever successfully faced spiritual warfare is a child. <laughs> they were a child. That, that, that identity is still their most fundamental identity, even if they're a Navy SEAL in some other spiritual realm or natural realm. So I, I, to, to avoid being sucked into dualism, you know, my, I've composed and quieted my soul. My soul is like a weaned child leaning against my mother, that kind of thing. And then here's this great one. The deepest level of communication is not communication, but communion. It is wordless. It is beyond words. It is beyond speech. It is beyond concept. Not that we discover a new unity, but we discover an old unity. Let me just say that again, because this one strikes me as important. Not that we discover a new unity, but we discover an old unity. I think you could also replace the word in there, unity for identity. Not that we discover a new identity, but we discover an old identity. And that's what I think this I am God's child is. It is our oldest identity. Not that we discover a new unity, but we discover an old unity. My dear brothers and sisters, we are already one but we imagine that we are not. And what we have to recover is our original unity. What we have to be is what we are. Thomas Merton. That's good. That's why I think this is such an important, and I'm going to call it a revelation. Uh, and, and I'm not suggesting by it being a revelation that nobody knows it, but... Um, I'm not even suggesting that anybody in this room has never thought about being a child of God. But I think at the, at the very, I think it's really possible that we didn't dwell on it as our most fundamental identity. And in doing so, we passed over it without fully exploiting the natural capacity that that identity has to help us see the kingdom to engage the kingdom, to receive what we're seeking when we pray for healing or we pray or, or we, we, we question how are we going to live in prosperity? How are we going to live provided for? And so, you know, my contemplative advice is spend some time thinking about this. <laughs> spend some time at the beginning of each day and see if it does, in fact, act as an anchor for your life, for your soul. So, Father, I would, uh, I just thank you. I thank you that you have opened up to us, and it's always been open. But for me, I'll put it for me, you've opened up to me a fresh vision of an awareness that's some very, very important things. 
happened before the foundation of the world. And they, they, they impact me directly. They were choices that you made about me without my permission, without my awareness. And all the longings of my life and all the longings to have meaning and to, to be good and to experience and give love, they all flowed from those choices. Without that choice, none of that would have popped into, into my gray matter. You have carved out our identity as your children. And you sent Jesus to help us know. First chance he got to respond to a teaching question was when Nicodemus says, we know you're from God. Because nobody can do what you're doing without him. And instead of saying, thank you, or cool, glad you saw that, (laughs) Lord, you said, verily, verily, I say to you, unless you are born again, you won't even see the kingdom. And I know that you knew that the born again that you were talking about, Nicodemus figured it out too, was becoming God's child, becoming the child that he had chosen us to be since before the creation of the cosmos. So Father, let us use every contemplative skill that we have, and let us have some new ones. Give us some new ones. And spend at least a season focusing on, meditating on, receiving the fruit of, the joy of, the strength of being God's child. And I'm excited to see what comes from it.